So this episode of Homo Sapiens is coming to you from me and four men up a tree. Tree surgeons, I believe they're called. Do you think they're interested in LGBT History Month? Because listeners, that's what it is. This February 2022, it's LGBT History Month. It's all very exciting because when I'm not being interrupted by the loud drill of men cutting down branches over my head... We are going to be talking about something fascinating that I have wanted to do as an episode since the beginning of the whole of this podcast. We're going to be talking about the Pink Pound. We're going to be talking about the history of the Pink Pound. The Pink Pound being how queer people spend their money, really. And it's such an interesting route into the history of queerness. And we're going to be talking to the wonderful Justin Bengry. He is the director of the Centre for Queer History at Goldsmiths University in London. And his Queer History Master's degree is one of the first degrees of its kind in the world. And it needs to be protected at all costs. So Justin is basically a social and cultural historian and he's done some amazing research on our queer ancestors and he does an amazing load of work about the Pink Pout. So we can talk to him about that and so many other brilliant things, talking about fascinating stuff like how the the Pink Pound has been used against queer people in order to make us buy things that actually work against us in some ways or how queerness has been so used by tabloids as scandal over the years and how that's been used to sell papers by vilifying us. Well, we won't have it any longer. Can't wait for you to hear this lovely chat with him. Now, what else have I got to tell you? This is the last week you can buy your tickets to our live show in London on the 14th of February. We're doing a crossover episode with the Guilty Feminist podcast. We're doing I'm a Homo sapien but or I'm an LGBTQ plus but person but uh, talking about all the things in queer culture that we don't know if we can get on board with. Plus, we're going to be talking about queer love with Deborah. It's Valentine's Day, so we're going to be talking about our own very special brand of love. Um, It's great, and they've got uh, another episode being recorded the same night that you can also watch. But links to buy the tickets are in the episode description. They are officially running out with a capital R and a capital O. So if you want to come, I'm dying to meet you all. Please click buy on your tickets now because, well, because they're running out. What more need I say? Now, Thank you so much for all of you getting in touch about last week's episode, which was our Time to Talk Day episode with lovely Jordan Stevens, star of Rizzle Kicks and founder of mental health campaign I Am Whole. If you haven't listened to it yet, go back and listen. He also released a single that day, which is very timely of us. Brilliant single. And always it's got, always got a message with Jordan. And I thought it was great. Time to Talk Day was actually set up by Mind, which is an amazing uh, charity, and they do incredible stuff. And Fern Cotton actually is there. What do you call one of their patrons, I think. We had loads of lovely tips from listeners in there about how to help with your mental health and actually lots more people writing in and sending in their voice notes about mental health awareness stuff. So um, I'll get I'll dig into that in a second. But first, have you written me an email? Please write me an email. Hello at homosapienspodcast.com. Right, get in touch. Tell me what you're up to. Um, tell me what birds you can hear singing in the background. Tell me, how are you celebrating LGBT History Month? How about that? It's hello at homosapienspodcast.com or at homosapiens on Instagram. Email time. Sibal has been in touch with a book recommendation. Killing the Black Dog, a memoir of depression by Les Murray. So if anyone wants to read that, that's a goodie. According to Sibal, I have not read it. Sibal is French. 
Gareth has been in touch. Hey, Chris, I have just finished listening to the episodes with the brilliant Dr. Raj and the equally amazing Hayley Kiyoko. Firstly, I'm very happy to say that I have more than one person that I talked to about mental health, friends, partner and a therapist. But it wasn't always this way. Growing up in the straight world, I always tried to maintain an outward persona of being a joyful, happy person. This came at a cost of not acknowledging my own feelings and pushing them away to avoid dealing with them. Well, I can relate so far to this. Queer people always end up trying to be the funniest person in the room. I don't know why. Back to the email. Fast forward into my 20s and 30s and I found it really hard to even access my emotions and I felt a bit dull inside, particularly when it came to opening up in front of my partner and friends. Bless you. Thanks so much for writing this, by the way, because I can relate to so much of what you're saying, Gareth. Thankfully, I had the privilege of being able to access therapy. Therapy really helped, but that is not an option for everyone. Quite right, Gareth. Thank you for pointing that out. Other resources I found useful were Esther Perel. Ooh, Esther Perel, love her. Just everything she says or does, from TED Talks to her book, book, Mating in Captivity, and her podcast, Where Should We Begin? My therapist also pointed me in the direction of the Gottman Institute and the great work they do with relationships. Well worth a look. Uh, Listeners, do you want a minute to go and get a pen? Because this is all brilliant advice from Gareth, I have to tell you. My partner and I now have a, have a weekly family meeting. We could quickly check over what's coming up in the week and make sure our schedules align. But more importantly, we check in about what went well in the previous week and what we can improve on. It sounds a bit like a sitcom, but it works really well. Gareth, I'm all for this stuff. I think it's amazing. And it just neuters or gets rid of that thing where things go unset. We live such busy lives, all of us. And it's never the right time to bring things up. So those weekly meetings in a relationship, I'm a big fan of them personally. They are a time that you can just bring stuff up. So you're never, ever sitting on something. You're never, ever not bringing something up and sort of feeling like it's bubbling away inside you. And it is such a lovely feeling. I cannot describe what a lovely feeling it is to know that you're always on the same page. I think it's nutritious and it's like watering a plant. It's wonderful. Secondly, I'm absolutely fascinated by the book you mentioned in the chat with Hayley Kiyoko, ah, which was called something highly sensitive people. It's on the shelf behind me, listeners. Let's have a look. Where's it gone? Still haven't read it. Um, it's not there. Oh, God. It's been a theft. Um, back to Gareth's email. I thought everyone walked into a room and could in- instantly read the energy. As I get older, I realise that is not the case. Hell no, Gareth. I do wonder, though, is it a byproduct of being queer in a straight world? For as long as I remember, I've been reading the room. When I was younger, there was definitely an element of trying to find the spot where I would be the most comfortable. Pause to drink some water. Also, can you hear how quiet it is? Those boys cutting down the tree that were so loudly as I sat down to record. I was like, oh, here we go. I think they've gone. I reckon they're on lunch. Back to Gareth's email. There was definitely an element of trying to find the spot where I would be most comfortable in the kitchen with my female relatives while all the male relatives watched football in the living room. Gareth, I can relate. Or safe, I went to an all-boy secondary school in Belfast in the 90s. You need to be alert. Now I enjoy reading the energy in the room and trying to go against it. Can be difficult at times, but a fun experiment. By that I mean if there's a group who seem to be commanding the space in a social space, maybe going past them and speak to the person who's hanging back. Interesting. Thirdly, picking up on the conversation about terminology with Dr. Ranch, someone once said that they thought of queer as our genus or family name, to use biological terms. And all the other titles exist within that. I really like this and feel that it gives everyone space. Thanks. That is wonderful. I love that terminology. And on the Dr. Ranch thing as well, someone else got in touch who was a maternity nurse, is a maternity nurse, and she said that they are all never taught that anyone coming in with a kid 
or in any respect with a kid, there is an assumption that there's a, it's a husband and wife setup. So anyone who's thinking about that being tricky, I thought that was a really lovely thing to hear. Two other lovely, lovely bits of getting in touch about mental health stuff. Grant's been in touch with a voice note about her experiences of mental health taboos at work. Mental health is talked about so much more now, which is great. But I still find, especially in the workplace, it's not where it needs to be. It's almost as if, well, we've got a policy, so we're all good now. We've ticked that box. But there's very little behind it. And like you said in your recent interview with Dr. Runge, I also find when you mention mental health, there's still a lot of eye rolling from some people. I've recently, well, in the past year, taken on a more senior role at work. And it's caused some issues uh, with my mental health in the past few months. Despite all the policies, I still didn't feel comfortable mentioning it at work. And when I eventually did, I go, yeah, well, everyone's really stressed. And I just don't think that's good enough these days. People really need substance behind all the promotion and policies that are being put out there. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, with change? Because the workplace is changing and people are understanding this, but there's the front-facing work, the sort of public-facing work, which is, yeah, we've got a scheme, and then there's the hard work, which is we're doing something about it. And it's interesting that different companies are not coming up to scratch in that area sometimes. I hope you are okay mental health-wise. I hope that you are able to take some time for yourself and to look after your mental health because it's so important. And I'm sorry to hear that you are not being given what you need because you should be. And I hope that as you rise up the ranks, as it says, you you know, recently taken on more responsibilities, you'll be able to bring about more change and, and there won't be people like you it's people in a situation like you are in the future because of the good work you're doing so you know thank you for that and thank you so much for getting in touch it's it's really important and something i think will really resonate with a lot of people listening wonderful claire sent us the most beautiful voice note let's have a listen hi chris it's claire here i wanted to say something about the unexpected positives that opening up about my own mental health has had for me when i was in my late teens and early 20s i had a really depressive period which I couldn't speak to any of my friends or family about. A lot of it was wrapped up in my feelings of shame about my sexuality and my inability to fit into the gender stereotypes which were presented to me about how girls should be in the world. I ended up on antidepressants and it was a really lonely time. However, it was also the time when I made my first queer friends and that led me into having more of a feeling of acceptance about myself, even though I still couldn't speak to any of those friends about the more negative feelings that I had. And instead, I put myself or most of my energy into being supportive of others, which enabled me to neglect myself and not address my own issues. That felt safer somehow. Things did get better, though, and after a few unsuccessful attempts, I ended up in a long-term relationship. But when that finished in my mid-30s, I went through another really depressed time. Things got so bad, I didn't see a way that I could carry on, and in desperation, I finally started talking to some of my friends about how I was feeling. And what amazed me about this was that although I saw myself as someone who offered support to others, this was the first time I'd allowed other people to support me. And so much love came my way from my friends, so much support, so much sharing of their own stories. It was amazing to me that sharing my own vulnerabilities could encourage other people to share theirs. And it really solidified some of my friendships with people that I'm still really close to to this day. It also helped me to share how I was feeling with my mum, who I'd never really talked about any of this to before, and it meant that I eventually became a lot closer to her to the point where we now have a really good, solid relationship. 
By the time I was in my 40s, I was working for a mental health organisation and doing nothing but talking about mental health with other people, which brought me a whole new set of friendships and helped me develop a whole new set of skills. I was involved in organising a mental health festival and Mad Pride events and spreading the word that talking about our mental health is one of the most positive things that we can do. Peer support can be as important, if not more important, than clinical interventions or talking therapies or medication. I'm recording this on my 56th birthday and I'm happy to report that despite the appallingness of the last couple of years and the spikes in my anxiety that it's all entailed, I started a new relationship during the pandemic and I'm in a really good place. My girlfriend and I talk about our mental health a lot and are both happy to get professional support or therapy when we feel we need it and the future looks good for us. However, something that still depresses me is the way that important community-based services have been cut including the organisation that I used to work for, which lost all its funding. I think there's a real cost benefit in supporting people in the community, particularly through the arts and creativity, to prevent their own mental health deteriorating and to help them to recover when they've experienced difficult times. Clinical interventions can be vital, but they're often much more expensive than keeping people well in the first place, although that needs investment too, of course. And one of the best ways of doing that is allowing us to keep talking to each other and sharing our stories, which is exactly what Homo sapiens is so brilliant at. So thanks for everything you're doing, Chris. It's really appreciated. Claire, my pleasure. Thank you. What a wonderful note. And I'm so pleased that you've been through a whole journey of talking about your mental health and how much that's healed you and sharing your vulnerabilities. If you're struggling with your mental health and you can find people you can be vulnerable with, it is the answer let me tell you and claire i'm really pleased to hear that you met someone over lockdown will there be a wedding oh my god a homo sapiens wedding i'm not suggesting i was involved in how you got together but you know like Scylla, i'd have to buy a hat imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Now then. Let's go have a chat with Justin Bengry. We're going to be talking all about the history of the Pink Pound and much more. Very exciting. Here you go. Hi, Justin. How's your LGBT History Month going? It's off to a busy start. I've been giving a couple talks to uh, to schools, uh, to events, and I've got loads lined up. You know, here we are, LGBT History Month 2022, if my dates don't escape me. Is it interesting that you said you 
mentioned doing a couple of talks at schools that there is a thirst for it now that there wasn't before. I think it's fantastic. I, I've been really um, excited by the number of teachers and schools that get in touch asking me to come talk about um, LGBTQ histories because having grown up in Canada in the 80s and 90s um, when I was in, in school and high school, zero discussion. I mean, there was, there was no section 28 that, that officially forbade, uh, uh, discussion of homosexuality in certain contexts, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. it didn't happen. So yeah, I've been really right. excited to be able to talk about the work that I do and about the possibility for studying queer history at university to students in schools. Mm. And then, so I know Scotland are better than the English on this stuff. Uh, LGBT history has been uh, mandated in Scotland and some states in the US. Um, and my understanding is that that has not come to pass yet in, in England. Though I do understand there's, there's discussion of um, uh, LGBTQ issues in the national curriculum. But I don't know as a, as a non-school educator um, mm. what, what that requires of teachers and requires of schools. That's where we can continue to agitate for more, I think. Oh, let's. So one of the things that I think is fascinating that you do, among many fascinating things you do, is um, talking about the pink pound. And I wondered if you would just explain a little bit more, because it feels like such a, a new term, the pink pound, or something that's probably been floating around since the 80s. But Actually, it's something with a long lineage of it's sort of a it's a fantastic route into queer history is what I'm trying to say. Well, exactly. That's what makes it really exciting for me, because, of course, all of us are living in within capitalist structures. This is something that impacts all of us in one way or another. And while we can readily understand how business interests seek out LGBTQ spending um, today, and in the recent past, as you said, from the from the from the eighties, the nineties, from a period at least in this country where people could be more openly LGBTQ. Mm. Um, while we understand that that exists in the recent past, I think we assume, oh, it must have been completely different in the past. It must not. It must have been too dangerous. It must have been too risky. It must have been just non-existent. They they just had no idea that we existed. Um, and and in fact. What I found by doing my PhD actually in, in that area was that businesses were a lot more savvy than we necessarily have given them credit for. And they mm. recognized that there were people who could be identified because of their desires, because of their gender nonconformity, because of the way they stood out differently from other people. And that could be linked to their purchasing habits. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got pretty conclusive evidence of an awareness of, of the existence of what we would today call queer consumers, LGBTQ consumers. They didn't use that language earlier in the 20th century. Um, but I've got pretty conclusive evidence of that going back to the very beginning of the 20th century and wow. um, very clear discussion of it by the First World War. How would you define the pink pound? I would define it as any economic relationship between LGBTQ people and business enterprise. Any situation in which queer people are either seen as profitable or where homosexuality, queerness, LGBTQ-ness can be sold. It's the understanding of it sold in certain ways. So I've, I've tried to think about the definition of the pink pound as much more than just 
trying to secure LGBTQ spending or the how we deploy our economic power. And I mm. like to think about how businesses might profit from that discussion of us, of queer scandal, of titillation, of possibility, of homophobia, all of these things in ways that are profit motivated. Oh, interesting. When when someone says pink pound to me, in this summary I'm about to give, I'm aware, it, I know that it is more detailed than this, but there's always been this thing of like, well, queer people don't have families, so they have more disposable income, so they spend it on scented candles. <laughs> you know, like that seems to be, there's some of that around, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's this stereotype of, of the dinks, the double income, no kids. Um, oh, and- I love that. <laughs> and um and i suppose especially those of us that are middle class cis white gay men who are more economically privileged in general yeah we do have the resources to go and buy scented candles and i'm thinking i've got some scented candles downstairs though some of them were gifts but probably from other gay people uh who bought them as well um they're all just circulating among gay people. <laughs> Evidently. <and> I, <laughs> um, but I mean, I think this is also a, a problematic stereotype because it kind of looks to the most privileged among us to confirm that there are those among us who are privileged. Mm-hmm. Um, when mm-hmm. in fact, there are many, many LGBTQ people, including cis white gay men who are not economically privileged. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly as we start thinking about the economic marginalization of of women more generally, and how that impacts upon um, lesbians and lesbian couples, of trans people, of non-binary people, about people who are uh, marginalized for all variety of reasons. That includes a huge chunk of LGBTQ people who are not able to participate so fully in the consumer economy and have questions of survival at stake and mm. uh, and getting by. And I mean, with discussion now about the uh, what we should expect to be a shocking increase in the cost of living in the UK that will mm. hit LGBTQ people who are economically marginalised quite hard. Yes, and is is does the term pink pound almost is it slightly problematic that term in some respects now? It, it feels quite singular when really we're trying to open up into including everybody. I suppose for me it starts a conversation, um, and I suppose there's always we should always engage with and critique and uh, think about the terminology that we use, what it includes, who it excludes, and what kind of cultural work that does. Um, So I think we should certainly critique the term. For me, it's a starting point. Um, And it's something that people understand. So to start with something that is accessible and understandable um, is, is important. And then we can start breaking down that complexity and those further questions. But I, I take your point, absolutely. And so long before scented candles were available, when were some of these first instances of seeing the pink pound be mentioned or when you found it in history? See, now you make me realize that I have absolutely no idea of the long and varied history of the scented candle. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, this can be your next PhD. I, yeah, no, exactly. I'm happy to be an expert witness on that PhD. But... <laughs> well, it would need multiple examiners. So uh... yeah. <laughs> but if we're looking at the um, the longer and more expansive history of the pink pounder, if we just want to say the pink economy or economic mm-hmm. interest in LGBTQ people, lives, experiences, what have you, this certainly goes back more than 100 years. Um, mm. The first instances that I'm conclusively finding 
are in early magazines. So the, mm. the, the early men's press, the men's lifestyle press at the beginning of the 20th century was grappling with how to speak to men as consumers, as those who would desire things and buy them. Um, while also recognizing that just a few years earlier at the Oscar Wilde trials in 1895, that kind of conspicuous consumption, that kind of showy consumption, elite consumption, was seen as suspect, was seen as potentially indicating um, other abnormal habits. And it was uh, these indulgences in fashion that then could be understood as potentially signaling queerer possibilities as well. So these early men's magazines, just a few years later, are trying to figure out how do we speak to male consumers without compromising either ourselves or alienating them because we're 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 we're, we're working in this area that's a bit dicey. Mm. And so what I saw was that they were well they were trying to have it both ways. Um they were they were on the one hand trying to speak to that mainstream consumer without alienating him, uh mainstream ostensibly straight male consumer, while at the same time recognizing that there were men in London and other major centers whose consumption practices uh, might actually indicate that they're queer um, Mm -hmm. and that they could make some money off of this. So around, I think it's around 1900, I have the editor of one of these magazines saying, um, well, we've been accused of trying to attract, they describe them as something like effeminate men who uh, shop in Bond Street and have their hair curled. I mean, it's using mm-hmm. all these kinds of codes that we understand today for queerness at the time. Um, mm. And it's saying resolutely to its, this isn't an editorial, so it's writing to to others saying, well, no, we're not doing that. Of course we're not doing that, dear reader. Um, but then finishes by saying, but if we were, the proprietor of this magazine would be a very wealthy man. So it's signaling both that there's a group of men out there who are different Hmm. possibly based on their desires and sexuality. It's not using that terminology, but that's that's the the area that's being suggested. So there's that type of man out there um, that he consumes in certain ways and that we could benefit from that. Hmm. And that's roughly about 1900. It's really interesting that it's it's linked to flamboyance, isn't it? And Ooh the the male struggle because we're talking about specifically gay men here or effeminate men is the masculinity has always struggled with flamboyance you know so men are allowed to have a nice watch <laughs> like that can be or they can have a nice yacht but they can't <laughs> you know the, this is quite defined what what's allowed to be elegant or beautiful or yeah. glamorous you know one in those early magazines then they could have yeah exactly some of those types of consumption were appropriate but then they they were warned off of things like yellow kid gloves pastel colors soft collars mm-hmm. they were specifically told which fashions styles colors and accessories would be suspect and compromising um, really? But I think what's really interesting about that is that as soon as you start naming all of these suspect fashions and suspect uh, accessories, you're kind of giving a bit of a, a, a guide to what's queer circa 1900, 1905, and mm. giving a bit of a guide to someone that wants to be on the lookout. Well, yes. what if I see a guy that's wearing yellow kid gloves or a soft collar? Mm. Maybe there's some possibility there. Maybe I should wear those. And see who chats me up. Ah, oh, clever. So there's an interesting, we can read it against the grain. And I think actually that some of those early magazines doth protest too much. 
and on the one hand are trying to say to some consumers, hey, we're manly and okay, and to others saying, here's how you might uh, uh, strike up a conversation with someone interesting. Mm. It's also the the history of coding queerness, exactly. isn't it? There's, I can't remember where I saw it or heard it, but someone cleverer than me wrote a whole thing about how gay men used to speak through female characters in Hollywood films. Mm. And that's why a lot of their behavior was quite camp. Gay men weren't allowed to write gay characters, but they would just put it, their voices into the voices of women uh, on screen. It's that just instinctive coding, isn't it, that is peppered throughout LGBT history. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think returning to this question of, of capitalism and consumerism, so much of it is ultimately a history of codes and coding, because where do those codes show up? And if they're showing, I mean, for me, it's interesting what products uh, giving knowledge of those codes. So I've been interested in books and magazines, for instance, um, or what, uh, what exactly is the material thing that expresses the code, fashion, accessories, what have you. Um, you're talking about film. I think it's really interesting to think about the, the commercial side of these films as well, where queer codes are being expressed. Um, mm. It just opens up so many possibilities for further, further investigation. In the 50s and 60s, some of the fashions, some of the uh, catalogs of early queer boutiques that I've seen uh, from, the, from the 50s and 60s were using the names of notorious travel destinations for their garments or using mm. words that would signal. So something might be called trade wind. So it's playing with the word trade um, oh. or might speak to, uh, uh, might be what, reference Capri or reference uh, uh, a destination that, that was known for... Sitches. Uh, Mecha yeah, Mechanos. I mean, if it would have come a bit later, I'll bet there would have been like the Sitches trouser, well, the, the yeah. Sitches trunks or the Sitches brief. <laughs> <laughs> the Fire Island slippers. Well, exactly, exactly. You're not far off. So, I mean, but that opens up. It's more than just, here's some stuff being sold. It's speaking to that whole circulation of knowledge on mm. quite an international scale and the understanding that others would understand it. Yes, all those learnt little roots in to find other people like you, you know, which was all so clandestine at the time. Wow, that's the crucial thing, isn't it? How do you learn? How do you learn these codes? You're not just born knowing that Sitges is significant. No, very true. I've never actually been. That's the end of part one of our lovely chat with Justin Bengry. We're talking about the history of the Pink Pound. Head back over to the feed and you can hear part two. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Powered by Spirit Studios.